off on another amazing episode of the Hyper Anomalous Esoteric Research Organization podcast, also known as the Hero Paranormal Podcast, broadcasting from the base at La Madre Mountain, just south of Area 51. My name is Ryan, the Anomalous Ambassador of the Airwaves, bringing you an absolutely fantastic episode today. On today's podcast, we have a great conversation with Ryder Lee. Ryder runs the popular Raised by Giants podcast, where he talks all things spirituality with people from all backgrounds, trying to bring different perspectives of what is taking place in our reality on an individual and collective level. Ryder believes we're in a spiritual war right now on this planet and Well, we just can't solve those problems we face today with worldly solutions. And I think he may be right. Super excited to talk with Ryder. Ryder, how you doing? I'm Ryder Lee. Tonight we have returning guest Ryan Burns. But before I introduce him, check out Raised by Giants on Rockfin. It is a completely uncensored platform. Go over there, set up a free account, get all of my regular content that I post on here and all of the other creators' content as well, and sign up for Rockfin's premium content, which is far less than a YouTube premium account at only $10 a month, and you'll get my premium content when it gets released and all of the other creators' premium content as well. Check the link in the description to sign up for the video streaming platform, Rockfin. Also, check out C60 Purple Power. It is the most powerful antioxidant on the planet. Helps with energy levels, skin problems, infections, eyesight, brain cognition, EMF radiation, and a lot more. It is a free radical sponge that gives your body the ability to heal itself. And if you use promo code GIANTS10 from the link in the description, you'll get 10% off your entire purchase. I highly recommend it. So without further ado, introducing tonight's returning guest, Ryan Patrick Burns. He began researching the Uintal Basin and the mysterious Skinwalker Ranch years ago, but when his passion for answers could no longer be quenched, He left his corporate job in Salt Lake City and moved to the desolate and remote basin to investigate the ranch full-time. Ryan now owns property overlooking the ranch. He hosts the popular podcast Hero Paranormal and has written about his experiences investigating the Skinwalker. Hello, Ryan, my friend. Good to see you again. Thanks so much for coming back on. How are you doing? Doing great. Great to be here. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's been a little bit, and I'm really excited to to speak with you and uh, really jump into this and and dive in and get some more details than last time. So to kind of start this out, what's what's happening at uh, Space Wolf Research, my friend? What, what do you guys got going on there? I, I suppose the first uh, thing that you can mention is you know what is Space Wolf Research and and what are you guys trying to accomplish there? You bet. Uh, SpaceWolfResearch.com. It's basically a base camp um, for research and investigation. Just a small private real estate company uh, using a variety of different research methods to try to anticipate anomalies and kind of be prepared for them and be able to document them and collect the data. And it's it's been um, been great. We've been using uh, different AI software. Uh, that is kind of interesting because it kind of helps build a database of when things happen. You know, you have your more traditional stuff, you know, like farmer's almanac type things that work really well. But uh, there's also a little bit, it seems, um, of random uh, number generator type uh phenomena that takes place. And honestly, this this high strangeness seems to 
be right at home playing with uh, random number generators as well. So nothing seems to be able to evade or trick the trickster, at least not as of yet. But yeah, having a great time out there. We've been messing with, uh, I shouldn't say messing because it's very serious, but we've been basically poking the hornet's nest of high strangeness and also trying to keep things safe. We've been using, like I said, cutting edge uh, technology, but then also using ancient technologies um, like stone Peruvian heads that were shipped up from Peru and um, placing those in different locations on the property and seeing how those tend to uh, adjust or maneuver or basically correlate with the electromagnetic frequency spikes and radiation spikes that we're gathering. And there does seem to be a very real correlation between where you have these large stone heads that um, are very powerful according to Mesoamerican culture and where these EMF spikes and radiation spikes take place. So there seems to be some congruency to it all. It's really wild and I love doing it. Is there any government funding for this uh, program that you're running or is it all done by private investors? Uh, nothing I can, as, as far as funding, I can't get into any of the funding just because uh, it's much of it is much of it is covered under non-disclosure agreements and things of that nature. So I can't really get into funding. Well, I was just asking because we know that the government had a hand in the, the funding of uh, Bigelow Aerospace and, uh, you know, at the Skinwalker Ranch as well. And you're really close to the Skinwalker Ranch. So I, I was just uh, curious, but I, but I understand. <laughs> so the, uh, so the last time you were on, we kind of, you kind of dropped a, a bomb about these underground bases or tunnels that are scattered throughout the uh, Uintal Basin. So maybe explain and, and tell the audience a little bit of, of what you know about that, because I find that very interesting. Yeah, great question, man, and actually super synchronistic. Um, actually, today and tomorrow, we are conducting ground-penetrating radar uh, tests up there and uh, have a few people helping with um, things, basically seeing if and how caverns or cavities connect, uh, also doing some magnetometer readings. And yeah, there does appear to be, from all viewpoints, a cavern system of some kind in the Uinta Basin. And it seems to um, encompass a large portion of what we call the dinosaur diamond. So that's an area, if you call uh, the Uinta Basin, it's basically like a big bowl, right? So it acts almost like sort of a satellite dish in cosmic terms. And if you look at the whole thing, it's fairly large, like an 80 square mile radius, uh, a, a large chunk of land. And everywhere from the east slope of the Uinta Mountain Range coming down all the way to an area known as Thompson Springs or, uh, you know, as you're, as you're nearing Moab, really. So it's, it's the bottom portion of the Uray uh, Native American Reservation, which is extremely massive and has a variety of just wild, wild canyons and some of the coolest stuff you've ever seen. And uh, an area known as Nine Mile Canyon, which is more like 90 miles long. Uh, I, I found that out the hard way uh, the first time I went down it. But yeah, that's that's actually all encompassed in this. And there does seem to be cavernous, veiny-like structures or tunnels that go under the entirety of it. I don't know if this is just remnants from an ancient underwater aquifer from the past or if there's more to it. There has been a lot of speculation that there may have been ancient species uh, of possible humanoids that built this, according to some of the researchers on site, people that are researching places like Sardinia and other locations that have parallel petroglyphs depicting the same things, which is super odd because the Uinta Basin is 
obviously separated from these other locations by thousands of miles. So it's, it's and, and major oceans. So um, how they have the exact same petroglyphs and uh, they seem to be mimicking each other is a real head scratcher, but they do seem to be purporting the at least historic presence of giants or giant-like individuals. You got to be careful because you can really go down this rabbit hole and uh, go hard into the paint as far as the giant thing. If you follow a lot of the research, they seem to have been quite Nordic in features, possibly having red hair, multiple rows of teeth, depending on some of the literature and uh, petroglyphs and pictographs that you check out on the subject. But more importantly, they seem to love caverns, caves, tunnels, things of that nature. There's a massive cave system that starts uh, between Vernal, Utah, and a town called Dutch John, which I used to be a fly fishing guide at. And it's deep in the Ashley National Forest, uh, Little Brush Creek, and there's some other caves in the area that go forever. And when I say forever, I mean they have not found the ends of some of these caves. So it is possible and likely that there is a lost history to the area and that if not built by ancient civilizations, there is a very good possibility that ancient civilizations may have used some of these tunnel networks to either transport things back and forth, hide from enemies or ambush enemies. And it's uh, it's super interesting. I, I, I find that the just the scale, the, the massiveness of the Uinta Basin and locations like Nine Mile Canyon, which have literally, it has the longest and most extensive petroglyph system in the world. I mean, you cannot find anywhere on the planet that has more petroglyphs than this place. And they're not that hard to find. I mean, if you just, uh, if you just look. So it's one of those things, if your mind is open and your eyes are open, there's a lost history in the area that a lot of people, including myself, are very interested in, and hopefully we can all kind of work together and accumulate data and find out more. Has there been any uh, giant skeletons found in the Uintal Basin? Because we know that there's some that's been found in Ohio and Pennsylvania and places like that, like the Serpent Mound and stuff. Uh, has anyone discovered any giant remains like giant skeletons so that you know of it's very interesting because there's an intimate relationship between some of the private property owners and some of these locations that they've opened up for research and i've heard a lot of well from very reliable sources that they haven't opened the entirety of some of their properties up to public uh viewing and some of these locations have what appear to be excavations nearby. So yes, I believe that there is the possibility that something like this will be found nearby in Brewer's Cave. Uh, if anybody wants to do a quick Google search and other locations in Utah, there have been purported massive giant-like skeletons and bones as, as well as artifacts found. So there is a history in the state of Utah for this type of thing. It's not just you know, smoke and mirrors and crazy ideas. There's actually some history for this. And as you know, uh, I mean, even as far down as Nevada, the Lovelock Cave, I mean, a lot of this stuff has been very well documented. We have uh, a giant-like skeleton that was found there. And what's more interesting is it, it was also somewhat mummified and it was quite literally older than the mummies found in Egypt by a lot. So there, there was definitely um, people roaming this area. It's not, you know, being Columbus Day, it's not one of those things where, you know, Columbus found this place and there was nothing going on before then. There's a lost history that seems to be very, very lengthy. And it, it's very possible that more will be found over time. And you hear a lot of... Uh, a lot of rumors of organizations that are somewhat clandestine, not always government related, but possibly with government ties coming into some of these archaeological dig sites and basically taking over, like cordoning them off. I heard a uh, event in Arizona where this took place and there was an archaeological dig with the university. They found Tibetan prayer flags. 
literally in this Native American Hopi site. And those two things are not supposed to be at the same location at the same time, at least not according to our history that we're spoon fed through our collegiate system. So they shut the place down. Nobody was exactly sure who took over, but it was taken over and the students were no longer welcome there and were made to sign NDAs so that they could not discuss what they had seen. So there is a real lost history, it appears. And I, I'm, I, for one, think that, you know, even if a little bit of gold slips through the cracks, we might be able to find it. So you say that the, you believe that these cave systems were maybe uh, created by an ancient civilization, these, uh, these tunnels. Is there any evidence of a dumb or a deep underground military base that could be operating in the Uintal Basin that you are aware of? That is a really good question, man. And I like how you asked it because there is a, a lot of evidence suggesting, again, a lot of these things were done either with government affiliated projects or there's plausible deniability due to the fact that these private corporations, many of which are aerospace corporations, were involved in uh, studies that were funded by taxpayer money and quite clandestine or black budget or not, not something that civilians readily were aware of. And among those studies, there was one of the, one of the very best um, remote viewers on the planet, Joe McMonagall, was involved in one of these studies there in the Uinta Basin. And he, for a fact, did a very accurate view of the, this, uh, this hotspot. And in his opinion, near this epicenter of activity, there was telltale signs of what he could call an underground control center. Now, that, is, that, is that a deep underground military base? Unknown. Is it, is it possibly a deep underground, possibly uh, extraterrestrial base? That's unknown. He did sort of say that it was along the lines of something more ancient, but it's very difficult because, again, this was all covered in a project that was quite literally a black project. And this is a place that uh, where where he was remote viewing, all he got were target numbers. You know, he did not have any geographic or geological background on the location yet in his drawings. And some of those are available, actually, in, in some uh, recently published literature on the on on the Uinta Basin and some of the uh, some of the stuff that's happened in the epicenter there. And in his drawings, he extremely accurately drew all of these buildings on location in the correct order. He drew rocky outcroppings, even trees and and waterways and uh, red rock ridges, you know, to a degree where you would swear that he was looking at literally a picture of the place when you overlay it with an actual picture of the place. So as random as remote viewing seems, I'm a huge believer. I have talked to other remote viewers who have been called in on projects to the Uinta Basin, and they've told me off the record that yes, they also sense that there is an underground control center, as they say, of activity of some sort. And whether that's human or something that is more of a mix or possibly interdimensional, it, it, it really is open for discussion. It's it, there, Nobody has any hard and fast proof. Yeah, I believe in remote viewing as well. And uh, apparently so does the government, <laughs> you know, with all the remote viewing uh, declassified documents, Project Stargate and stuff like that. And I personally believe that that's what they were trying to do was create these psychics and remote viewers through their MK Ultra programs, uh, their Monarch programs and uh, Montauk programs. That's what the, the whole basis for the project was to do, was to create these psychic and remote viewers for uh, clandestine operations. But um, it's really interesting that uh, we're talking about these deep underground military bases that have... Have you heard any like um, 
machinery noises, machinery noises, because I watched this, uh, this documentary on the, uh, on the travel channel. Well, it's not really a documentary, but it's like a series on the travel channel called the Alaskan triangle. And my friend Eric Hecker was, uh, in that show and they went out. Uh, I don't know if you know about the Alaskan triangle, but it's where all these people go missing. It's kind of like the Bermuda triangle and the great lakes triangle where, you know, people seem to just kind of disappear. And he went out into the, uh, off the coast there in a little town. I can't remember the name of the town in Alaska. And uh, with a device that was able to listen like underwater. And he got what sounded like a bunch of machinery noises, like heavy machinery uh, on the device that he was using. And of course they didn't show that in the, uh, in the show because the, you know, the show's not actually interested in finding the truth. They, they just want to ask more and more questions. So I know that that was a little bit long winded, but uh, is there a correlation between these heavy machinery noises that could possibly be heard in uh, some kind of uh, deep underground activity? That is a great question and super relevant given some recent activity that has happened on a bordering property that Space Wolf Research sold to a, uh, a good friend of mine. And um, he has dubbed the property Umbra Viventa Lucis or like the Center for Starry Wisdom, taking a much more consciousness research approach to the entire ordeal. And he was camped out uh, next to a pond on the property and he messaged me and said, Brian, is there any machinery under this pond? Any pumps, any vacuums? Basically, I said, no, there's nothing, nothing of that sort. No irrigation machinery, nothing at all. And he was witnessing this pump making, well, this pump, it seemed like a pump. He was witnessing this pond making gurgling sounds as if it had a pump in it or some sort of machinery and the water was being agitated there seemed to be there seemed to be some something either pushing water up into the pond or pulling water out of the pond at the bottom now it has a side entrance that goes into a little creek but that that would not be gurgling at the center of the pond as if there was a uh, a fountain or a or a pump or anything mechanical of that nature but he asked me is there something mechanical going on in this pond? And there absolutely is not. So uh, that's a property that is super near and dear to my heart. And he's taking really good care of it. He's somebody I trust very much or else I would not have sold it to him. And he's taking an approach a lot like mine where we feel like we're stewards of, you know, just caretakers really of the land and not owners. And we are trying to somewhat commune with the properties in ways that are not uh, invasive. So we're trying to play by the by the property's rules. And I know that sounds very strange talking about land as if it is alive, but when you when you set foot on these locations, it very much seems like some of this property and some of these lands are very much alive, especially when the sun goes down and night falls. These locations seem to have an energy about them they seem to be super welcoming at times, at other times uh, kind of give you the cold shoulder and it's stuff that people can feel. And on various occasions, you'll be walking along and feel what literally feels like the ground shaking below your feet. Whether this is an electromagnetic frequency spike or if the ground is actually shaking is difficult because oftentimes as researchers, investigators and scientists in the area, have attributed, I've been there with multiple groups before and had this happen, a sense of vertigo often comes over the people observing or witnessing this phenomenon. So it really makes you wonder if it's all in your head or if it's actually happening. Yes, it feels like the ground is shaking, but you also feel vertigo. So it, it's really, really bizarre, really bizarre. Yes, you hear underground um, murmurings, rumblings, and mechanical noises. But I thought this recent experience that this gentleman had at the pond was super relevant with your question because it's not a big pond. It's a smaller pond. And yet 
he could very legitimately see what he believed was some kind of machinery making the water move and making sounds and making noises when, in fact, there's nothing in there. Yeah, that's really interesting. I actually had an experience like that at a uh, paranormal location, like what you're talking about with the, the ground moving. Me and my friend was investigating this house. We stayed there for a week, and the entire house just vibrated. Like it was like it was shaking, dude. And I literally wanted to get out of the house because I didn't know what was going to happen. You know, I was just kind of frozen in fear. But the entire house was shaking. It was like a paranormal earthquake is what they call them. But it wasn't in uh, nature or whatever. But I thought that, you know, the house was literally going to collapse. And I was like, you know, where's my nearest exit point? How do I get out of here as quick as possible? So uh, I, I have experienced that. It's, it's really uh, it's really nuts. Yeah, there there is. I think that's a really good name for it. I'm going to I might steal that name from you, uh, paranormal earthquake, because that's exactly what it feels like. And uh, it, that's a really good describer of, you know, what's taking place. So I might steal that from you if it's cool, Ryder. That's a good name for it. Yeah, go ahead. One hundred percent. I uh, yeah, we we stayed there for a week, and it was like one of the last days that we were there, and it was the entire house was just shaking. It felt like there was going to fall apart, and we felt like it was kind of coming from the basement of the house. And we woke up in the middle of the night at like uh, two or three in the morning, and it, just to the house shaking. I was like, "Holy crap!" But again, it was like what I was what you're explaining. You're like okay, well, is this happening in my head? Is this, but we were both experiencing it, right? So I knew that it wasn't just me. You know, I stood up, I had the camera in my hand and I'm looking at him with my jaw like wide open while he's sitting on the bed. I'm like, bro, like what is happening right now? Yeah, it was really intense. That's what's um, so weird. Like, and architecture is not immune from um, some of this movement. In fact, we have had to, you know, more than a lot of the listeners, but we have had to put uh, basically tent stakes around anything that is placed out there, whether it's buildings, structures, and architecture is not immune because these things seem to move a little bit. And it doesn't matter how big it is, you'll come back to an area and be like, wait, wasn't this just over there, which sounds completely impossible. But yeah, we've put tent stakes around and, and been trying to keep an eye on that and this house that you were in was it an was it like an older house like a vintage home or a newer home it was kind of the the foundation of the home was really old it went back to uh you know the late 1800s but it was kind of modernized mm -hmm. right so the basement was kind of the the oldest part of the house which well, is, is really weird too because your space space uh space wolf uh research and the name of the house was called the wolf house Oh, how cool. I love it. Uh, I love it. Well, you know, believers in the Tartaria conspiracy theory are convinced that a lot of this uh, type of architecture that is older in nature, and some of it has very stable structural foundations that they were built over particular areas or energy lines or grids, and that, you know, they would be prone to some of that. So that's interesting. Yeah, we kind of thought that too, maybe it was on some kind of ley line or something, but it wasn't so much because I was a huge paranormal investigator, uh, you know, back in the day, I've been to some of the most popular uh, uh, locations um, in the United States. And we thought maybe because it was all a psychological thing there, you know, it, it wasn't so much you would see things or really hear things like the house would just play games with you. Mm -hmm. You know, they try and psychologically manipulate you and kind of like, you know, uh, tricking you like a trickster is basically really what it was. And we didn't really see too much there. It was just like the house had a dramatic effect on you psychologically. Uh, it's really weird. It is weird. And it's kind of kind of sticking with that Russian Tartaria type theme a lot of the architecture in Russia, I mean, you, you see this stuff and it's mind blowing and you see things like the uh, Panama Pacific International Exposition in ancient times. I Well, I say ancient. I wasn't around, but it was San Francisco, 1915. And a lot of these structures that were supposedly built for these fairs 
uh, seem to be so ornate and mind-boggling that a lot of people have claimed it's not possible to build something like that just for a World's Fair. Um, you know, this this fictional, empirical, you know, type architecture that would just baffle anybody and then and then knock it down after, you know, after the fair or, or not too long afterwards. And, you know, you see a lot of this in Russian architecture and it brings to mind, you know, that Russia has always sort of been the enemy in so many of the history books. And it's kind of like the place everybody wants to uh, get rid of. And I don't know if there might be under, obviously there's, there's a lot of political factors, but I always wonder if the, if the place ever was taken over, obviously it's so massive and has so many natural resources and such a massive army and been at the game of war so long that it's super unlikely. But if anybody ever did take it over and we may find this out in our lifetimes, what would happen to the architecture there? Because it's mind boggling. I think there could be a lot to be learned just from looking at some of the architecture over in Russia. I don't think that they could tear it down unless they completely nuked it because I'm pretty sure in Russia, there's buildings on top of buildings on top of buildings. Like they go down stories, stories and stories deep. Right. And they just, uh, built, uh, new structures on top of old structures, which then leads credence to some kind of mud flood activity that happened because there's literally pictures of uh, whenever they would excavate some of these places that people didn't even realize that they were living on stories and stories of much older buildings. There's a church there and there's like this entire complex of uh, area of uh, buildings that goes down like uh, 20 stories. And you can see how old the, the brick foundation uh, was, you know what I mean? So it's, yeah, there's a there's a lot of there's a lot of stuff to that in the Tartaria and the World's Fairs. I mean, they definitely couldn't have built that in the time span that they said that they did, right? They said that they built up all those World's Fairs in like two years' time. Uh, you talk to uh, you know any architecture expert nowadays, and they'll tell you that that would take years upon years to build that. I mean, it looked like ancient Rome and downtown Chicago in the late 1800s right you just can't do that in two years yeah and man you know i was blown away on a recent trip to philadelphia um because i i, I had no idea you know kind of going along this mud flood theory i i got to see franklin court which was the site of the brick home that benjamin franklin lived in and apparently it's one of these situations where you know franklin moved into the home which was already standing he died there like in 1790. But when you're looking at the remnants of some of these, these buildings and these properties, they're down. They are down lower than street level, like significantly. Like the courtyards and the, um, it does appear, you wonder why is it so far down there? You're looking at some of the stuff and you're just wondering like, you know, that's, that's a good eight feet down. Why is the floor of that building a good eight feet down this was an already standing structure apparently and you know it's it's just really strange the details of the building and and the way it's built a lot of these buildings as you say appear to have been well built on top of each other and in fact you look around and you realize that there must have been a lot of other houses around this house and there are a lot of buildings built on top of those so it's it's super fascinating, you know, where, you know, an entire house could literally be under another house. Yeah, yeah, it's it's, it's really incredible. And I implore people to, to research that and look into it because it's it's really, really interesting. And, you know, like we built structures way we built them the last you know, back in the day. So it only makes sense that if some sort of ancient civilization, maybe even a more highly advanced civilization was here before and built their structures really, really well, and some kind of catastrophe or a mud flood or something came through, it wouldn't 
knock them down, right? They would just bury them. I mean, look how long the, the pyramids have been standing, you know, really, really long time. It doesn't seem like they're ever going to be destroyed. They're like a forever lasting structure, right? So if they had just a little bit of the ingenuity left over from ancient times to build some of these structures, then the structure would inevitably last. And then we just been, we found that and then we just built on top of it. A lot shittier, I would <laughs> say, because nothing is built to last anymore in, in our reality. You know what I mean? Houses are built one year and buildings are built one year and then they're tore down the next year, it seems like. That's a big. That's a big deal. That's building things that that last now. I agree, man. That that the whole idea of like cornerstone building and like the ceremony that was typically involved of creating these these buildings, it was like a whole other, a whole other situation taking place compared to like modern building techniques where it's just so fast and cheesy and cheap. Like you said, it's not made to last hundreds of years, it's made to last decades, if that. It's it's a totally different, you know, there, there used to just be entire rituals and ceremonies involved with placing the cornerstone and then uh, building building the property and engravings commemorating the time when tar- particular buildings were built. You don't see any of that anymore. It's just glue and wood shavings put together slapped up as quickly as possible and sold for the highest price. And it's just kind of sad. Like a lot of the the brick masons and a lot of the Masonic, for lack of a better word, um, important cultural components of building structures are gone. It sucks. Yeah. It really seems like we've, we've, we've descended on that, on that trail, right? Because we've been using the same stuff for decades, right? We've been using the, the same exact things, just modified just a little bit to make it seem like it's different so that we, you know, buy it. You know, we're still using the exact same things that we're still using the same refrigerators, same microwave, same, you know, uh, uh, washer and dryer. You know, none of it has advanced. The only thing that's advanced has been our technology. Right? And we know that our technology isn't good for us. You know, it's actually, you know, putting off very harmful electromagnetic frequencies that is not conducive to the human body, right? So that's the only thing that they seem to be interested in evolving is our technology, right? They don't really care about our way of life and, and making our way of life easier and better because they keep producing the same thing over and over again. You know, we're still using trains we're still using uh planes uh you know uh gas power vehicles you know i mean and there has been a little in, uh, innovation on that front we have electric vehicles, but that's not any better right right there's been something that's stunning our way of life in, in the way that we do things like in the way that technology has developed and advanced if our way of life had advanced along with the technology i think that we would be living in a utopia right now it it does seem as if there at least what you were mentioning a lot of these technologies are just hand-me-down breadcrumbs from the industrial military complex i mean you look at the military technology trends and the artificial intelligence the advanced defense equipment the robotics the autonomy and it is quite literally everything that we are super stoked about, even our cell phones is to a degree, just kind of hand me down uh, breadcrumbs to stuff that is super advanced military technologies. And it, it makes you wonder, I mean, when you have these, these nuclear battleships that can run indefinitely forever and uh, you know, we have to stop at the gas pump and weekly if we can afford it so it's hard to forecast where technology would be if it was super abundant and like an open an open system i don't know man it's it's pretty wild that we're still flying you know in jets that people were flying in in the 40s it's nothing's changed like you said very little very little 
Yeah, we know that the military has, uh, you know, highly advanced technology. We know that the government has highly advanced technology. I mean, there's patents out for the, the TR-3B, and you're totally right in saying that, you know, we have these nuclear-powered, uh, uh, you know, uh, naval uh, fleets, you know, and what are they running on? You know, they have to be running on some kind of, there's no way it's, that it's just nuclear power. It has to be some sort of, almost free energy device to keep it powered forever. Right? And they're, they're not saying that, you know, they're telling you that it's nuclear powered, but really they're, they've been using something completely different. That's just my thoughts on it. Yeah, there's a lot of different energy. And I mean, you do need the military to make these advancements. Obviously, we probably wouldn't have the internet or our cell phones or, you know, even satellite TV if it wasn't for their advancements and the the fact that they protect us is also pretty important so i get i get the trade secrets but some of the things really make you wonder at least at least they make me wonder you know when we purportedly were able to get to the moon in 1969 haven't gone back yet are you know we're shooting the dart uh, into space and hitting meteors at 7 million miles away. This is mind-blowing technology, in my opinion. You know, I'm, I'm not a scientist. I'm not, I'm not going to pretend that I can even wrap my head around 7 million miles away and shooting a spacecraft that costs $300 million um, to engage it or to knock it off course uh, just a little bit. And sure, is it to save humanity? That's that is the story. However, when you when you do the math, it just seems, in my humble opinion, mind-boggling, mind-boggling math. And you know, is it possible? If these things are possible, what else is possible? Absolutely. And then you know, looking at Bigelow aerospace and the technologies that they might be developing because I had Tom, Tom Carey on my show and he's a really uh, researched area 51, not area 51, but the Roswell incident. He's researched that. He's written like 12 books on the uh, Roswell incident. And apparently he or someone he knew submitted a FOIA request uh, to figure out where the uh, the uh, remnants of the crash landing in Roswell in 1947 is at, right? And apparently he got the FOIA request back, and it stated that it was at Bigelow Aerospace in California. So, do you know anything about that? I know that that leads into the William doc, the 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 basically the Wilson document leak, and I. I Tom Carey, I mean, he had a secret uh, crypto clearance, so he, his pay grade is much higher than mine. But I know that that kind of starts infringing a little bit on the Wilson document leak, which you have a highly, highly praised and regarded scientist talking to a military uh, gentleman in a parking lot, literally, and, you know, we now have FOIA requests of people that are trying to f basically say that this stuff is not authentic. And it's funny how it's funny how they they I won't mention names, but people who are saying that a lot of this stuff isn't authentic hold true to the fact that anything FOIA coming down the pipeline would tell them anything. The belief that anything mm -hmm. under the Freedom Information Act would tell you anything in my mind seems preposterous because that is like asking Big Brother to tell you where he hid his Playboy magazines. He's not going to do it. He might, you know, he might show you where he lit, he hid the My Little Pony magazines or something like that. But the bottom line is that it's a good theory and it's a great program. I think that FOIA is a great system and all of that. Do I believe that we are getting actual redacted solid information in every case? Probably not. And there's a reason a lot of it is redacted. And whether the stamp is on the left of the page, the top right of the page, uh, whether it's, you know, in the correct format, a lot of people have kind of deemed themselves FOIA experts 
which, um, you know, is breadcrumb experts, in my opinion. It's not any valid research because as I've noticed when it comes to military and military documents, not to mention administrative uh, secretary work, which is usually what you end up signing, these things can come in any array, shape, or size that works. And a lot of times, the plausible deniability that is incorporated in the paperwork can come from those very items that are being uh, used to make them disingenuous or claim that they're not authentic. So I find it very strange. You know, I've seen a lot of certificates of authenticity, whether it be um, on NASA documents. Um, I've seen a lot of the paperwork that has come from regional directors of aerospace corporations and this stuff, you know, from one season to the next, you can get different watermarks, you can get different stamps, different different ways that these these contracts are written up because they're written up for different purposes. And at the end of the day, all that matters is if you signed them, whether it holds weight or not, and what they do with the documents. So I think the Wilson document leak is super, super engaging because there is the, well, it, it's very obvious. There is the uh, belief that we have reverse engineered craft and we have original craft, which may have been found in, again, archaeological digs, and that we have placed them in places with plausible deniability, which are in fact privately held uh, aerospace corporations or things of that nature. Because if you keep these in a place like Area 51, then they have to give you a FOIA. But if you keep this in someone that you know's warehouse that happens to own a aerospace corporation, then you don't have to include anything. And that is kind of the plausible deniability that has made this country able to get away with so much in their technological advancements. It's much like the day after Roswell. You know, if you give it to a LLC or a corporation, which just happens to have 20 or 30 sub LLCs under its umbrella of various names, all dealing with different scientific endeavors, there is no way you will ever retrace the steps or find out exactly where it came from, what's being done with it, where it's being housed. And it's done like that on purpose. So it seems to me that it's a really good plan. They're doing it really well. And to use that as a way of debunking it to say, oh, well, we can't show the uh, chain of command from here to here. So Luis Elizondo never worked for the government. It's like, no, that's that's the most ridiculous, in my opinion, way of unscrambling the egg because you still have egg all over the place and it had to come from somewhere just because it, it's it's just it's a it's a tricky subject matter and people who are doing it are literally master magicians at their craft. It's much like the, I was just blown away this morning getting an email um, about someone who verified yet again the existence of what we know of as the aviary, which has been debunked 10 times from Sunday. And, you know, leave it to ufology to try to debunk these things that are at the highest levels of government and then I think to myself, well, if I was at the highest levels of government, wouldn't I want that debunked? Of course I would. I would want it, everybody to think it was completely fake because that's the end of the story and you can go on business as usual. But yeah, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of pieces to the puzzle. I don't claim to know any of them, but yeah, it makes me wonder, man. Makes me wonder. Well, it's like that with any of the supposed classified documents that has been released, especially the MJ-12 document, you know, them coming out saying that, you know, that it's fake and it's nonsense, but the original version was real. You know, it's to create confusion and muddy the waters and get people confused on what's truth and what's not truth. And then if you release a completely fake document, like one that's just completely made up. It also gives you the ability to blanket any of the real ones with that made up fake document too. Right. So if you released a completely, you know, made up fake document, then you can be like, Oh, well, you know, this gives us plausible deniability that 
all these other real documents are also fake. Right? It's a trick that they've been doing forever. Two lies and a, uh, well, you know, two truths and a lie. It's a genius. It's genius. You know, I remember seeing, and I'm sure you've seen it, video footage of what was claimed to be, it was very blurry. It was video footage of what was claimed to be Bill Gates, a young Bill Gates, pitching this um, nanoparticulate technology that they called the Funvax, which was basically uh, for fundamental extremists in the Middle East. And this, this obviously very intelligent, bright young man is in front of these generals and he's pitching the idea of dropping chemtrails of this nanoparticulate over these epicenters of fundamental extremism in the Middle East and explaining how it will quite literally disconnect them from their God and make them less dangerous. And that should be the scary thing, right? Well, as time passed, this took a few years, you get more clear uh, video of the same same conversation and the same uh, gentleman pitching this to uh, these government types in an obviously secure facility. And what was obviously noted is, hey, that's not Bill Gates. So this is obviously all BS. And it was thrown out, you know, throw the baby out with the bathwater. That's the end of that. And people aren't looking at like what you said. They're not looking at the reality of what may be taking place here. And that's the kind of deniability you need because to be honest, sure, we have enemies. Sure, we want to neuter them from a uh, terroristic standpoint where they're not hurting us. But at the same time, when you look at the fundamental technology that's being used, that has extremely long-based mind control trauma type stuff written all over it in the long term. These are, you know, obviously enemies that prey a lot of the day. And um, to be able to manufacture something that disconnects them from their higher power at a very readily documentable rate is frightening to me. So just because it's not Bill Gates in a blurry video showing these generals how to do it doesn't mean that we should negate the entire video leak. And I think the same is true of the Wilson documents, or as you said, the things Carrie mentioned about Roswell, the things that the book Day After Roswell uh, talks about. You have a lot of people who are giving a lot of information about a lot of things. And at the end of the day, if you are judging them on one little tiny part of the pie, you're going to miss you're going to miss the big picture. You're going to miss the dessert. Absolutely. I agree with that 100 percent. That's why I try and bring a variety of people on my show, you know, to, to talk about what they know, you know, because you get a little piece of the puzzle and then you start putting the pieces of the puzzle together and then it starts to, you know, kind of make sense and you start to get the the big picture of everything that's going on, right? But they do seem to do that. They seem to throw the baby out with the, uh, with the bathwater. And I think that that's on purpose, right? They They definitely do that on purpose so that they don't have to take responsibility for anything that they do. They can just brush it off onto the next person or the next thing. It's always someone else's fault, right, Ryan? It's, it's always, always another country's fault, another group's fault, another individual's fault. And then they're never going to take responsibility for anything that they've done. And, and really, so it used to be that, you know, it's kind of flipped now, but it used to be like people outside of ourselves, like from other countries, were the enemy, right? They they made that very clear with 9/11, right? They're like, okay, it's these uh, jihads over here in this other country that's the problem, right? And then they flipped that on us, and then they made us the problem, right? And now they're trying to flip it back and then make another country the problem again, you know? So it's just it's the same playbook, just spun in a in a you know in a different way with a different enemy. And I, I think it's important to mention also that the fact that they share anything, you know, with these FOIA, for example, or with these grainy videos that are leaked or the Wilson document leak, there's a lot of um, ritual, as we mentioned with the building of ancient architecture, there's a lot of ritual involved in information. And those who are involved in many of the mystery school religions or mystery school fraternities, 
etc. know about the ritual. They don't want the karma coming back on them. And as long as you disclose the information, it is on the observer to decide which way the, the karma goes. Because once you disclose, hey, I'm going to do this, whether you believe me or not is entirely up to you. Or, hey, I did that. Whether you believe me or not is entirely up to you. And I, I don't necessarily disagree with that because if the disclosure is there, whether or not people decide to believe it is entirely up to them. It's, it's a very, you know, it's a magic trick of the highest proportions that the media and I'm a, I'm a, I'm a public relations major that graduated in mass communications. And I, I remember hearing about the hypodermic, hypodermic needle theory which is quite literally, can we tell the public what to think? And the answer is yes. That's, that's, why, that's why it's called the hypodermic needle theory. You can literally put whatever you want in the injector, inject it into the mass media, and create the effect that you want. And um, it's brutally honest. It's true. But if, if people depend on you for their information, you can feed them whatever information you put in that needle that goes into their television. Absolutely. It's uh, crazy. It's nuts how brainwashed and controlled the, the mass population is. Um, I have one last question for you, and I'm going to let you go. Yeah, man. And you can, and you, can uh, you don't have to explain anymore right you can just say yes or no right is that fair sure okay have you witnessed personally ryan any highly advanced governmental technology whether reverse engineered or not reverse engineered uh personally on your own Yes. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, that's what I really just wanted to uh, confirm that there. Uh, thank you so much, Ryan. I appreciate you so much uh, for coming back on my show. I really enjoyed the conversation. Hope you enjoyed it too. Let people know where they can find you online or uh, find your podcast. For sure. Uh, the podcast is at heroparanormal.com. You can go on YouTube, uh, just search under Hero Paranormal or Patreon. It's under Hero Paranormal as well as Spotify and uh, I believe Apple Podcasts even. And the um, small science project or base camp in the Uinta Basin is spacewolfresearch.com is the website. You can also find that on social media such as Facebook and uh, TikTok, et cetera, will drop little uh, stuff that happens that is interesting. And yeah, man, thanks so much for having me. I love talking to you. And um, it, I don't know if it's of any note, but what I witnessed was actually before I ever really got engaged in this topic. So uh, there is there is amazing technology out there, and some of it is absolutely mind-blowing. Was it an anti-gravity uh, technology or some kind of different technology? It is along the lines of the, um, I would say along the lines of the X37B or the TR3B uh, technology realm without getting super on point. That, uh, in, that, in that ballpark, in that arena so like a try the triangle craft yeah but i have like the the three three lights on it you see was a lights or did you see like a like a physical craft very much anti-gravity is probably where i should leave it anti-gravity <laughs> characteristics <laughs> Well, that's about where I had to leave it because I realized that if you're describing technology that is cutting edge, even if this was years ago, there is the possibility that enemies could be listening and descriptions of whatever technologies are seen, if it comes down to how many lights was it, what color were the lights, what direction was it facing, did it have fins on it, did it have... All of these things could be things that 
enemies of the United States could use against the United States in a worst case scenario. So it's best just to say, hey, it was triangular. Hey, it seemed to have anti-gravity characteristics, which is all true. And it is amazing how many triangular anti-gravity craft are seen quite often. You have to take the case of, for example, the Blackbird over Tonopah, which many claimed uh, seemed and appeared to look like some alien spacecraft. Lo and behold, it was our cutting-edge technology that we needed to uh, be able to resist radar detection, and we were using it in a variety of ways against our enemies, and it was imperative to national security. So when you come across these things, it's always better to leave the details in the mix, let people figure that out on their own, and just say, hey, I saw something cool. And until next time, keep your eyes to the skies, feet on the ground, but don't forget to take a look around. Blast off in my time machine. Third eye feeling like an evising. Blast off. Blast off. Blast off. Blast off. Come blast off in my time machine. Third eye feeling like an evising. Blast off. Blast off. Blast off. Blast off.